Well, good morning. It is the dawning of the king and his coming that is so much the theme of the Gospel of Matthew that we have been studying together. And you can go ahead and turn, if you would like, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, marking something of a transition as we have spent somewhere around the past 30 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. And we now prepare to leave the Sermon on the Mount and enter into further descriptions of Jesus' life and ministry. I'm going to read Matthew 8, 1 through 4, which will be our text this morning. And you'll notice here as we begin, Jesus came down from the mountain. Large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This morning we're going to be asking the question of what is it that I learn from the example of a believing leper? What is it about his response? What is it about this story that impacts my life today? I'm not a leper. I'm not living during the time of Jesus. So how does this impact my life today? As we leave the Sermon on the Mount, we return, as I said, to Matthew's narration of the events of Jesus' life. We've spent a significant number of weeks studying this sermon, and as its name implies, this Sermon on the Mount is, in fact, a sermon. It is teaching. And so it's important as we transition from this, what we might call a didactic or a teaching section of Scripture, something, a place where it is instructive, where the commands and implications for our lives are primarily through prescription and imperative, So now as we turn our attention to these narrative sections to appreciate the different ways in which narrative passages instruct us. It's also important to recognize that just because we're now reading narrative descriptions of Jesus' ministry, it doesn't mean that there is no direct application for our life, nor does it mean that it's any less important or significant. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. As one theologian noted, in other words, no part of Scripture fails to have practical application for how a Christian lives. What he says, what she does, or how he or or she thinks. That's the Apostle Paul's teaching by the superintending work of the Holy Spirit when he writes these verses. Old Testament and New Testament narrative alike provides both propositional truths as well as important descriptions and implications for how we are to live and act as disciples of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we come to a narrative, when we come to the story that is being told, we don't get to check out. We don't get to say, well, this is entertaining. All throughout, as we look at these narrative sections, as we look at what Matthew unveils about the life of Jesus Christ, we are to continually be asking, how does my life as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a citizen of the kingdom, need to change and be conformed based upon what is being shared and what is being said? Matthew expects the church to see clear implication for our lives and thinking from these narrative accounts and to apply them to our everyday living. And to begin, it's looking at this passage, it's helpful again to remind ourselves of the reason that Matthew wrote this account of Jesus' life. First off, and I've already alluded to it, to whom did Matthew write his gospel? Yes, he's recording events during Jesus' life, but he didn't write it then. He wrote it a number of years later. And he wrote it for the church. Yes, it was to be a testimony beyond the church, but it was written to the church, to encourage the church. He was leaving a record and a testimony to the good news of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel. 
And as we've seen in our study and we'll continue to see, Matthew's primary focus in his gospel, again, if you've read your Bible or been in church very long, you know there's four gospels. You have one by Matthew, one by Mark, one by Luke, and one by John. And each of them provides a slightly different emphasis. They complement one another. They help to show off different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. And Matthew's primary focus is to make clear that Jesus is the long-awaited King and Messiah, the promised descendant of David. And so as he provides an overview of the life of Christ, Matthew is relating teaching and events that are specifically aimed at that purpose. Matthew couldn't record everything that took place in the life of Christ. That was impossible. John actually tells us that's impossible. Near the end of John's gospel, he writes, And there were also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So Matthew was necessarily selective, unable to record every event of Jesus' life. But he selected and provided through the superintending of the Holy Spirit what we have so that we might understand Jesus as king and how we are to live as citizens of that kingdom. So coming now to Matthew 8, we come to the first of several healing events, miracles. You may remember Matthew's summation before he began the Sermon on the Mount as Matthew's Talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the end of chapter 4 and verse 23, Matthew said, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. After that summary, Jesus, Matthew then provided that wonderful example of Jesus' teaching ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teaching, which emphasizes, as we saw over and over and over again, his messiahship and his kingship and his lordship. As we looked at last week, it ended with the crowds and all who heard his words shocked in amazement. Now Matthew turns toward illustrating in more detail the second half of that summary he provided in verse 23. Whereas the first half was the teaching. He now wants to provide us a summary and begin to describe the healing of disease and sickness, which also points toward the kingship and the messiahship of Christ. In verse 1 of Matthew 8, this first miracle of healing took place after Jesus had come down from the mountain. Luke provides us with a little bit more color in this same story where he just adds the note that this also took place within one of the cities. In other words, Jesus had come down and entered into one of the cities. Here in verse 1, Matthew says that large crowds followed him. There were already a large crowd around him there on the mount as he began his teaching. Perhaps it's many of these who followed him. It may have been more within the city who began to gather around him. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we really find him continually surrounded by crowds. In fact, the crowds became so oppressive that what would Jesus do? He would often retreat. He would go up and find a quiet place to pray, or he would sneak away on the boat by boat to the other side of the lake. On the one hand, we might think this was Jesus. Of course, there were going to be crowds. But it's also right to ask, what were these crowds after? Why was he continually surrounded by crowds? Why do the crowds continue to appear? Were they there because of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah? Were these crowds composed of persons who claimed to be disciples of Jesus Christ? Or was there some other motivation? John helps to answer that question in John 6, 2. There in John 6, he says, Great crowds followed him because they saw the signs he performed, the healing of the sick and the other miracles. What is noticeably absent what is deafeningly absent is what is not mentioned. They weren't following him because he was king. They weren't following him because he was the Messiah. They weren't following him because they believed in him and they hoped in him for eternal life, though there were some. But the great number of the crowds followed him because they were entertained. 
They followed him because, as we learned throughout some of the Gospels, they thought, well, maybe he'll help overthrow the Roman government. Boiled down, they followed him out of their own interests and for their own reasons and their own purposes. They didn't come for inward healing of their soul. They came to gratify their flesh. They came to be amused and entertained. And you can imagine how wearisome that became for Jesus and why it was that he would at times steal away to solitary places for prayer or take a boat to the other side of the lake. When people were constantly demanding things of him, coming for their own needs to gratify themselves, not to worship their Lord and Savior. It's probably a helpful place for us to stop and ask, why are we here? We won't belabor that point this morning, but it's always right for us to evaluate our motives and our intent. If our primary motivation is anything other than worshiping and serving our Lord, then we need to check those attitudes. It is good and right to enjoy the fellowship, to enjoy the time that we have together, but those are ancillary. Those come out of, and in fact, they're deepened and made richer by the worship of our Lord. And so it's fascinating here in chapter 8 and verse 2, there is, and the focus zooms in, it's as if the camera is showing the entire crowds, and then it zooms in on one who emerges from the crowd with the right motivation. Who was not there to be entertained, it was one who came to worship, to demonstrate faith and belief in Jesus as God and Savior. In your English translations of verse 2, if it doesn't open with the word behold, you need to make a note and it should say behold. It's there in the Greek text. We have behold. Matthew introduces the arrival of the leopard in such a way to grab our attention and says, pay attention, something is about to happen that is important for you and important for me in understanding this Christ, this Messiah, this King. Something unexpected is about to take place. And Matthew wants to grab our attention and focus us in on this event. Lay aside what's distracting you and pay attention. Coming to Jesus as a leper. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this story or one of the many stories about the lepers. But it's easy, especially when we're overly aware of something, to take it for granted. Do you understand how significant it was that a leper arrived to Jesus? What it means that a leper arrived. Do you understand what it means that he was a leper? Especially in that time and in that place of the world. Part of the reason that Matthew says, behold here is because this is completely unexpected for a leper to come forth out of the crowds because they're in a city, according to Luke, and lepers were not allowed in the cities. They were not allowed to live in the cities. They were banished. They were outcasts. They were on the outskirts of society. There might be a few special occasions where they'd come to gather supplies, but if they entered anywhere near a populated place, they had to walk around shouting, unclean, 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 so that people would avoid them at all costs. And the social stigma that would have existed with them Lepers were to maintain a distance of approximately six feet from other persons. And if the wind was blowing, it was 150 feet, according to the Jewish Talmud. They were practicing social distancing before we even knew what social distancing was. So the presence of the leper in this city was itself a bit of a surprise. But let's take a moment and understand a bit more detail surrounding leprosy and what it really meant in the ancient Near East and Judaism specifically. Because we, we want to appreciate what is happening here in the text. What is happening in this story? Leprosy in the ancient Near East was a description of several different forms of skin disease. Some were curable. Some would go away after time. However, the more severe form, what we would today call Hansen's disease, appears to be the more common form of what we see and find described in the ancient Near East. Hansen's disease is an ancient disease. It's been found in at least one mummy that we, that's remained from ancient Egypt. Jews 
specifically feared this disease. They feared it because of the physical effect, but they also feared it because of the cultural, societal, and ritual effect it had upon them. To give you an idea of just how much the Jews feared this disease and how lowly they thought of anyone who contracted the disease, listen to what one ancient rabbi said. When I see lepers, I throw stones at them lest they come near me. Or another who said, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leper had walked. When they, there was a, just a pure hatred almost. They despised those who were lepers because they were considered ritually unclean as well. A lot of misunderstanding existed around leprosy, uh, around how it affected persons. In more recent study of leprosy in the 20th century, Paul Brand, a world-renowned expert on the source and treatment of leprosy or Hansen's disease, provided insight into the unique nature of this affliction. In describing it, Hansen's disease is cruel, but not at all the way that most diseases are. It primarily acts as an anesthetic. It attacks the nerves and numbs the pain cells of the hands, the feet, the nose, the ears, the eyes, and the extremities. Now, at first you might think, that's not so bad. I mean, most disease, diseases we fear because of the pain, right? So what is it about a painless disease that's so horrible? Well, for thousands of years, people thought leprosy caused ulcers on hands and feet and the face, which eventually led to rotting flesh and loss of limbs. However, what Brand was able to establish, and remember, people didn't know much about this disease because nobody wanted to get close to the people who had it. So he began to get close to these people and to study it and to work with them. He was able to establish that in virtually every case, lump Leprosy only numbs the extremities. The destruction of the body follows because the warning system of pain is gone. Demonstrating how the decay of the body happens, Brand relates that in villages of Africa and Asia, a person with leprosy has been known to reach directly into a charcoal fire to retrieve a dropped potato. Nothing in his body told him not to. Patients at Brand's hospital in India would work all day gripping a shovel with a protruding nail or extinguish a burning wick with their bare hands, or walk on splintered glass, all without even realizing it. On one occasion, Brand tried to open the door of a little storeroom, but a rusty padlock would not yield to him. So a patient, an undersized, malnourished, 10-year-old, approached him, smiling, said, let me try, Sahib doctor. So he offered and reached for the key. With a quick jerk of his hand, he turned the key in the lock. Brand was dumbfounded. How could this weak youngster, youngster overexert him? Upon examining the boy's fingers, Brand discovered the act of turning the key had gashed a finger open to the bone. Skin, fat, and joint were all exposed, yet the boy was completely unaware of it. To that boy, the sensation of cutting his finger to the bone was no different than touching a coin in his pocket or picking a stone up off the ground. The daily routines of life ground away at the leprous patient's hands, feet, and other extremities. There was no warning system to alert him. If an ankle turned, tearing a tendon, a muscle, he'd just adjust his walk and walk crooked. If a rat chewed off a finger in the night, which happened, he would not discover it missing until the next morning. This description helps us to understand the significance of this event. It helps to paint maybe more color than we even want, this person with leprosy who approaches Christ. Here arrived this person who was an outcast, considered unclean, untouchable in society, who depending upon the extent of his leprosy would have been covered in sores and injuries, dressed in torn and worn out clothing, speaking with a gravelly voice affected by the disease, even carried with him an odor of decay and open sores. It's in understanding his condition and understanding the uncleanness that we can understand the significance of this healing and the weight and the importance of what Jesus does. Now, before we go any further, look at the words of the leper. What does he say? Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You might also notice the position from which he's expressing this. He has done what? 
He is bowed down. He's bowed before him, acknowledging with his body that this is Lord. This is God. This is the King. And so with his actions and with his words, he acknowledges who God is, specifically who his son is. And then he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What a tremendous expression of faith. First, he rightly recognizes the significance of the person to whom he is speaking. He says, the king, the Lord who has authority over life, death, sickness, and health. But notice also, he does not demand healing. In fact, he doesn't even directly ask for it. Do you see that? Instead, he simply expresses the authority and the power of the Messiah. What he has done is he has kept the entire focus on Christ. He hasn't made it at all about himself. Even in the implicit request to be cleansed, to be healed, he's kept the focus on Christ. And you also notice he says, not you could heal me, but rather you can make me clean. This highlights the nature of this disease that not only made the body sick, but it made him ceremonially impure. Thus, cleansing would result in both healing of the disease and a cleansing where he would once again be considered ceremonially pure and able to enter into worship. Leprosy, perhaps more than any other sickness, is really a graphic illustration in the body of the effect of sin. Like leprosy, sin numbs a person to its destructive and dangerous results, doesn't it? Sin is self-destructive. We rarely recognize it until it's too late or has done serious damage. A pastor named Wayne Barber once said, sin will take you further than you ever intended to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. And the reason it does this is because you're numb to its effects. Like leprosy, John describes our healing from sin with the same language. It's the same language you have for healing from leprosy. Whenever you look at the healing of leprosy, the word that's used isn't heal, but to cleanse. John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our sin, like leprosy, makes us impure. It numbs us to the things of God. It slowly eats away at our spiritual vitality. In fact, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 32. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of the setting for this psalm. This is a psalm of David. This is David describing the effects his own sin is having upon his spiritual and emotional and physical state. Specifically, the sin of murdering Uriah the Hittite and taking and committing adultery with his wife. Look what we read. The whole psalm is worth reading, but we're going to read just the first four verses. It begins a psalm of David, a masculine. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in, whom, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then look at what he says. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. You see that description of sin and you know what this is like. It's one of the reasons we appreciate the words of the psalmist. They put into words things that sometimes we're even afraid to say ourselves. Because they don't sound Christian enough. But you know that effect that sin has upon your body. You know the effect it has upon your mind, your emotions. When you are living in unrepentant sin, sometimes it's hard to even pick up your Bible and read it, isn't it? Why is that? It's because you've allowed the sin to create a wedge between your relationship with you and God. Has that altered the fact that you are his child? If you have indeed 
confessed your sins and experienced that regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't change that you are a son or a daughter, but it has affected the relationship. Notice back in Matthew 8. The leper does, with regard to his leprosy, exactly what David says the sinner should do with their sin. Throw oneself at the feet of the Lord, asking for his mercy. There's no question here that Jesus has the authority to heal and to cleanse. The only question now is, does he desire to do so? Here the leper expresses faith in the power and authority of Christ, and he demonstrates it by prostrating himself and calling him Lord. True faith, believing faith, and this is an important litmus test, believing faith does not demand anything from God. It rests in God's sovereignty and in lordship. It expects nothing outside of what God has expressly said he will give in scripture. It certainly expects nothing on the basis of who I am and some, as if it's something I deserve. It comes with nothing to offer comes with no legitimate basis for the plea to be granted on my behalf or out of any good that I personally have. Rather, it comes only recognizing the authority of the Lord, the mercy of God, and if you are a believer, that you come with the blood of Christ. And it's on that basis that you can even approach the throne of God. And it's because of his blood that you can make a request. And it's why you can call for God to do what he has promised to do, not because I deserve it, not because I want it, not because I demand it, but because I recognize he has already promised it. Similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said God is able to save them, but even if he did not desire to do so, they would not worship the golden statue. We don't go around demanding and act as if we know the mind of God. Instead, there's a confidence and a complete surrender on what we don't know. We don't know exactly what this day holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Our confidence, though, is in who God is, in his character. And that's where we find our comfort. That's where we find our assurance. That's what allows us to boldly approach the throne of grace. Because no matter what happens, we know we have a Father who loves us. It's because we know that no matter what happens, our citizenship in heaven is guaranteed. This should be our posture, whether one is coming to the Lord the first time in repentance because of that transforming work of the Spirit, or whether it's the believer who is coming the hundredth time to confess and repent over sin and be cleansed as John describes in 1 John 1.9. So how do you approach God? What does it look like when you go to him? Do you really want his will or do you really think you know what's best? Well, how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to the leper who is now worshiping him, recognizing his power and his authority to cleanse and to heal? Was it to say, no, no, you are unclean. I am, I am as holy as it gets. Stay away. Was it to avoid touching him out of fear of catching leprosy? Was it to do what the rabbi we read earlier did and begin throwing rocks at him? Well, none of the above. But Jesus does not simply uh, not turn away. He doesn't simply... Just not treat him poorly. Jesus does the unthinkable, at least from a human perspective. He reaches out his hand and touches him. Now remember everything we read about a leper, everything we described about a leper and how significant this is. First off, they're already within that six-foot distance. Jesus did not have six-foot arms. 
So they're already closer than the law, the, the Jewish law, not the law of Moses, not scripture, but the Jewish law, what they said was allowed for a leper. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. This man who's covered in sores, who is, there's nothing pleasant about him to look at. This leper had almost certainly not experienced physical touch from another person for a long time, at least since his condition first presented. And we don't know the amount of time that was, whether it was weeks, months, or years. From a human perspective, Jesus is here risking catching the disease. At a minimum, he's making himself ceremonially unclean, and according to Leviticus, he must now separate from society as one who is unclean until he's purified himself, and it's determined that he himself does not have leprosy. Again, this is from the human perspective. However, something remarkable happens here. Something remarkable that demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah. As Jesus stretches out and touches this man, he simultaneously declares, I am willing be cleansed. Jesus could have healed with words alone, but demonstrates a gentleness and an empathy and a love that was unimaginable to most of those in the crowd by reaching out and touching this man. And Matthew states that first before he speaks, talks about the words Jesus says to emphasize that fact. That Jesus touched him. The compassion of gentleness must not be missed in this passage. It's a reminder of what we read in Matthew 11, 28 through 29. Where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle and he is humble, and he is kind, and he is gracious. Specifically to those who come to him in worship, to his children. And it's demonstrated here through him reaching out and touching this man who was rejected from society, who was unclean, who being in his very presence could make me banished from society. And something miraculous happens. Combined with his gentle kindness and compassion and empathy of the Lord is the power and the authority of God. Jesus' authority over this world resulted in his making the leper clean. Simply by being willing. The one who spoke creation into existence according to John 1. Who is there with God from the beginning. Who upholds this world, this universe, all of creation, by the word of his power, was willing and speaks and cleanses the man. Any other person would have been unclean and would have had to purify themselves, but Jesus was no ordinary man, we know that. Creator and sustainer of life, the promised messianic king, nothing could make him unclean or defiled. So rather than being receiving uncleanness when he touched him, he purified him by his touch, something that no man could do, no human being could accomplish. And it wasn't just in words or in thought or a nice idea. What happened to the leper? He was cleansed, the text says, immediately. There was no delay, there was no wait. The two other cleansings of lepers that had happened in the Old Testament. One of Miriam, Moses' sister, required her to remain outside the camp for seven days. There was a prolonged period of time. And it was through an intermediate source of time and, and following the ritualistic practice. The other one was the Syrian Naaman, captain of the guard, who was healed by Elisha the prophet, but he was healed again through the intermediate source of washing in the Jordan River. And there was time involved in a process here it was instant and it was immediate. It was like but unlike anything they had ever heard or seen before. Think about, too, 
what we described about a leper. In order for him to be ritually clean, in order for him to now be able to worship and to be declared clean by the priest, the sores had to be gone. The, the effects, the outward look of leprosy had to be gone, which means, as we're going to read in a moment in verse 4, Jesus telling him to go present himself to the priest meant what? Not only was the disease gone, the effects of the disease were immediately gone. The sores were gone. Any smell, the graveliness of his voice, the limp to his gait, all of it was healed in an instant. The moment he spoke and touched the man, it was a full, complete, and instant healing. There was no trace, there was no remnant, there were no scars, there were no open wounds, there was no rotting flesh. The healing was total and complete. So what does Jesus do after miraculously and instantaneously healing the leprosy of this man? Well, I mean, if nothing like this has ever been done before, then we shout it from the rooftops. No, he says, tell him, tell no one. Tell no one about this event. Now, why does Jesus say not to tell anyone? It's a fair question to ask. Well, if you read through the Gospels, you, you know that he's done this and does this a number of different times. And it's important to note, though, he doesn't do it every time. So it's not a universal command. There's not this universal overarching reason. And in fact, the different times that he tells the person who was healed not to tell anyone there's no reason to think that it was always the same reason. There could have been different reasons. So we're, we're most interested about why here. Why in this context would there be a need to wait? I think the best place to start in answering that is with the but here in verse 4. In other words, don't do this, but do this. In his excitement, the leper may have been inclined to forego the lengthy and somewhat difficult process of traveling to Jerusalem in the temple to present himself to the priest to sacrifice and be declared clean. In fact, even after Jesus' instruction, according to Mark, who also records this event in his gospel in Mark 1, 40-45, the leper did disregard Jesus' words. He disregarded that instruction and perhaps on his way to Jerusalem, couldn't stop from telling everyone as opposed to no one. One pragmatic result and consequence of him disobeying Jesus' words is Jesus couldn't even get into cities anymore. He had to do his ministry on the outskirts of cities because people were so excited, they thronged so densely at the gate that he couldn't even get inside. They would meet him on the outside of the gate and there was no way to get in. But it's also important and interesting to note that we have here another example of where Jesus demonstrates that he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He calls upon the healed leper to follow the prescriptions of the Mosaic law and presenting himself as one cleansed from leprosy. And Jesus provides another reason for this, right? He says that it will be a testimony to them. So there's two questions here. Who are the them and what is the testimony? I'll start with the more difficult one. That's the them. And a, and a caveat is that ultimately we, we don't know who all of the them, the plural, is, but we can identify who some of them are. It certainly includes the priest who will certify the former leper's purification. But again, the fact that it is in the plural leaves us wondering a bit as to whom else Jesus may have had in mind. We do know that there was amongst the Jewish religious leaders, especially at this time, there was an expectation in their own writings and in their own teaching that the Messiah who would come would be able to heal leprosy. And so while this was not an explicit Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah, they had added to it and created their own list of things that they would expect from the Messiah. Some of those other things were a blind man from birth, a lame person from birth, and raise the dead, all of which Jesus did, by the way. John walks through, and part of John's emphasis is showing an emphasis on the signs and the miracles of Jesus. And it's interesting to see how Jesus not only fulfilled every Old Testament expectation of who he was, but he said, just in case there's any doubt 
religious leaders, I'm going to fulfill every one of your expectations for the Messiah. And so the fact that this expectation existed, it's likely that news would have quickly spread amongst the religious leaders that the one who had authority to heal a leper had arrived in Israel. And so it's probably right to see the religious leaders and priests as being the them, or at least part of the them. But the text is somewhat silent here as to who the rest of the them are. But it does say it's to be a testimony, and this helps to color it in a little bit further. Because this idea of a testimony is used several other times in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, it's the famous sending of the 12 disciples to begin doing some of the ministry that they'll do after he's gone as well. And so he sends them out with the authority to heal and to cleanse. And amongst those things is leprosy is specifically mentioned. And in verse 18, Jesus says that these things will be as a testimony to Jewish leaders, governors, kings, and the Gentiles. And it will be a testimony specifically to the message they preach. So what is the message? Well, you can flip a couple chapters over in your Bible in Matthew 10, verse 7. This is what Jesus said. Remember, you're going with my authority. So they're healing not of their own ability, but of Jesus's. So they've now become 12 extensions of his healing ministry. And he says, as you go there in verse 7, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what was it testifying to? It was testifying to a king and a kingdom. This was the testimony. It was testimony, as you read and I've already alluded to down in verse 18, to the Jewish leaders, the governors, the kings, and the Gentiles, that the king had arrived, Messiah had come, and he's coming for his citizens and to build his kingdom. In John eleven five, 5, when Jesus' disciples come to Jesus, asking if he is, in fact, the Messiah, the expected one, Jesus told them to report what they hear and see Enlist the healing of leprosy among those messianic signs. This testimony that Jesus describes here is a testimony to the power of the kingdom and its king, Jesus Christ, not simply a testimony to the leper's healing. In fact, that takes a back seat, just as it did when the leper himself acknowledged Jesus' ability to cleanse. The cleansing is the catalyst, but it's there. It's like the flashlight shining the light on the king. A flashlight isn't a means unto itself. It's used to highlight, to show. When we looked at Matthew 4.23, we asked a question. One of the questions we asked back when we looked at that text is, in Jesus' ministry, why did he include miracles and healings? Why was it not just a preaching ministry? Why did he need to do miracles and healings? The somewhat simple answer or the short answer to that question is that it points to the reversal of the curse. It points to the promise of the new heaven and the new earth and the surety and assurance of that promise. That there will no longer be sin, suffering, sickness, and death. Testifies that Jesus is the one who can and will reverse the sin of death. And that he is the hope of salvation. And that it is found in him alone and in no other. If you are here this morning and you don't know that assurance. You don't have that hope. You do not know this king. And you do not know if you are a citizen of this kingdom. Then I beg of you. Have the faith of the leper. Call on him as Lord. Ask him to save you. He has said that all who come to him, he will not turn away. But like the leper, you must believe that he is God and he is able to save those who come to him. That he is, in fact, able to do it if he wills. The beautiful part is, the question is already answered. He does desire He is the one who will bring rest from the curse of sin and death and all of its effect upon persons and creation. Think about this from the standpoint of the church to whom Matthew wrote and left his gospel, which would be us. 
This story gives us hope that the God that we pray to is one able, if he desires, to heal our sicknesses and help us in our struggles in this life. So there is a confidence and an assurance. When you couple that with the rest of theology, and we understand that he is our father, knowing that a father delights to give good things to his children, it gives us, even though we don't have the big picture, it gives us comfort that when we aren't healed right away, when the relief isn't brought right away, that there is a good reason for it, because he is able. He is perfectly able. And yet, it simply reminds us that we don't have the full picture. But it also highlights for us and reminds us of the fact that no matter what happens on this earth, the assurances and the promises of the kingdom to come have not gone away. And so that the worst that this world can offer to us is death, but then comes eternal life. And comparing ourselves to the leper, we don't suffer from a skin disease, but we are reminded we suffer from a sin disease. And as long as we are in these bodies, we will struggle against sin and find ourselves needing to repent and be cleansed. That's why John wrote what he did to the churches in 1 John. And so it's right for us to ask, and as we conclude, to look again and remind ourselves from this text of ways that we follow the example of the leper, things we've already seen this morning. First, the reminder that the leper came out of desperation. It takes us back to what we looked at in the Beatitudes and highlights the poverty of spirit. Recognizing our desperate need for God to cleanse us. He is the only one who can cleanse us from our sins. And it involves humility. It involves repentance. It involves exactly what you see demonstrated in the attitude, the action, and the words of the leper. Secondly, this leper came with perfect trust in Jesus' power to answer. James reminds us of the importance of belief and trust and faith in what God says he will do. In fact, it says, if you ask, you must. It is imperative that you believe and not doubt. And then James uses the illustration of, if you're doubting, you're like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed about by the wind. And so we must have the faith and the confidence and the assurance that God can do what he says he can do. Which means, by the way, you need to know who God is. Spend time in his word, studying his character. Look at how he, look in the New Testament, in the Gospels, at how Jesus deals with his people. Thirdly, the leper approaches with a desire for God's will above his own. In our prayers and requests, I think we all would recognize that far too often we come out of our own selfish desires or from our very limited, short-sighted perspective. So we really need to work hard at cultivating and reminding ourselves that we don't know. We don't even know what we don't know, right? And so we come with humility. We come praying, your will be done, not mine. Again, it's part of the Lord's Prayer right there in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. I was impressed by one of the prayers, and when I say impressed, more not impressed in, wow, that was neat, but impressed in the sincerity of the prayer in one of the Puritan prayers in Valley of Vision. And I want to close by reading this prayer. O Lord, I hang on thee. I see, I believe, live when thy will, not mine, is done. I can plead nothing in myself in regard to any worthiness and grace, in regard to thy providence and promises, but only thy good pleasure. If thy mercy make me poor and vile, blessed be thou. Prayers arising from my needs are preparations for future mercies. Help me to honor thee by believing before I feel. For great is the sin if I make feeling a cause of faith. Show me what sins hide thee from me, 
and eclipse thy love. Help me to humble myself for past evils, to be resolved to walk with more care. For if I do not walk holily before thee, how can I be assured of thy salvation? It is the meek and humble who are shown thy covenant, who know thy will, are pardoned and healed, who by faith depend and rest upon grace, who are sanctified and quickened, who evidence thy love. Help me to pray in faith and so find thy will by leaning hard on thy rich, free mercy, by believing thou wilt give what thou hast promised. Strengthen me to pray with the conviction that whatever I receive is thy gift so that I may pray until prayer be granted. Teach me to believe that all degrees of mercy arise from several degrees of prayer. Then when faith is begun, it is imperfect and must grow as chapped ground opens wider and wider until rain comes. So shall I await thy will, pray for it to be done, and by thy grace become fully obedient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning as we spend this time studying the story of the believing leper. Father, there is much from the example that we would do well to remember and to model. Father, help us to humble ourselves. Help us to remember the short, limited perspective that we have. Help us to believe and express faith in our prayers, both in what we say and in how we live. Let our lives not contradict that faith. Father, make us aware of sin. Father, may it eat away at us, as David describes, to such an extent that we can bear it no longer and we come to, before you, to your throne, asking for forgiveness, knowing that you are gracious and kind and merciful, desiring to forgive and restore the sweetness of the fellowship with your children. Let our sin not compound and keep us longer. And like the leprosy that we study this morning, begin eating away, deadening us to the things of you. Father, may we have a sensitivity and an awareness of those around us who do not know your grace and your mercy. May we be bold in proclaiming your gospel, the hope of the kingdom. May we be a light, may we be salt, that from our testimony, many would come to your kingdom and become citizens of your kingdom. We pray these things in your name, amen.